Thank you. Welcome. Once again, as we continue on our study that we're doing uh, through the New Testament, right now we're in the book of John, and we're looking at John chapter 13 today. Now, these next chapters in John begin what's referred to as the, uh, the Last Supper discourse or the Upper Room discourse or whatever, but uh, Jesus now is alone with his disciples, and he is going to give them information that is vital to them and to us today about how relationship with God is supposed to look. Uh, and, and he's going to be talking a lot about the Holy Spirit in the next few chapters and his role uh, in our life. And uh, he will talk, the, the, the whole discussion will be about relationship and what our relationship with God is to look like and our relationship with others. And that will all happen here in, in this, this Last Supper, very private, um, sort of intimate setting that takes place with Jesus and his disciples. We're, we're right up on the end now of Jesus' earthly ministry as we move into these chapters. And so he's got all these sort of final instructions that he's passing on to his friends. Remember I said that at the end of John 12, it's, he, he addresses the crowd basically for the last time. And he, and he gives them another, you know, he tells them again what he's been telling them all along. And he now prepares for the part of the mission that he came for, which was to lay down his life for us as a good shepherd. And he knows it's coming, and you need to know that he's aware of that as he's um, talking to us in these verses. So let's look at John chapter 13 together. And uh, I'm going to read it through, and then we'll talk about it for a few minutes. And we'll go from there. So John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. 
I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth. One of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? That sounded funny when everybody turned their page at once. See, and it makes me giggle. I was at a meeting one time. And I'm not fond of meetings anyway. And 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 it was his, it was a meet, And the the guy who was speaking had an 18-page presentation that he passed out to everyone, and then he read it word for word. And what happened was, every time it went to a new page, there was like a thousand people at this thing. Everybody turned the page at once. Well, by the time we got to about page eight, I'm losing it every time because I've lost track and I'm getting so bored and all the papers rustling makes me laugh. And now when I hear something like that, I'm, I'm, I'm just like back there. It has nothing to do with the message. <sighs> of course, I lost my place too. Okay. As, yeah, there we go. Jesus answered, verse 26, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread and, and when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Jesus had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Blessed be the word of the Lord. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk about these verses um, together for a few minutes. And, and again, as I said, this is these verses in the next few chapters make up the upper room discourse, the the last supper discourse, and it's a very uh, powerful and intimate time that takes place here in the process. But, but I, I do want to mention a couple of things that we go, just for you to think about um, 
for, for the next couple of chapters and then uh, on into the end of the book. First, I want to talk about Judas. Um, Judas sort of represents everyone that Jesus offers eternal life to, but who refused to respond to the invitation. Judas had been with Jesus and the disciples from the beginning. He had witnessed the miracles firsthand, and yet he still chose not to believe. Outwardly, he looked just like the rest of the disciples. But inwardly, he was much more like the Pharisees. And this state of unbelief left him open to the influence of the evil one, and he ultimately betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, we'll read that, that Judas becomes remorseful after he's done this. And he goes, and I think, I think it's important to see, he goes back to the religious leaders, the temple priests, because um, he's distraught and he wants to give back the money. And, and he's, see again, he's looking for relief and the priests were charged with comforting God's people and, and ultimately helping them to be cleansed from their sin with, with the sacrifice. And, and yet they, they demonstrate once again who they are because what they say to Judas is, what business of it is ours? There's, uh, you, it's another picture at, of what the Pharisees are really like and why, why what's happening is happening in the process. And Judas ultimately runs to the edge of a cliff and he hangs himself and kills himself. And what you need to see is that, that see, he's remorseful, but it never comes and turns itself into repentance. He, he never goes... And yet he's seen Jesus forgive over and over and over again. And yet he refuses to go to Jesus for forgiveness. And yet it's a picture of what a lot of people end up their lives like. Uh, this refusal is just to the end to believe. And, and, and that's the, sort of what's happening here with, with Judas and, and what his involvement is in the process. And I want to talk about him again in, in a couple of minutes, but, but uh, I'll just leave you to think about that as we go through this. The other thing I want to talk about, and this is, this is just interesting stuff, I think, something you think about. Um, he, here in, in verse 13 for the first time is mentioned the disciple whom Jesus loves. You, you see that? He's reclining, reclining up against them against the table. Um, who do you think that is? John. Most people think it's John. And it's sort of what everybody thinks. However, he's never identified as John. And I would toss something else at you to think about. And, and, and I'm not saying I know what it could very well be John. But there's, there's a strong possibility. Go read the verses that is Lazarus. Because in 11, Lazarus is introduced as the one whom Jesus loves. And, and remember, it's, it's Martha and Mary and Lazarus whom Jesus loved. And we haven't had any of this stuff until 11 when we just had, you know, six days ago this whole thing with Lazarus happened. And, and I think it's interesting to think about that all his, the, the group that he's had there all split. The one person who might really not be interested in leaving Jesus at all in any of this stuff is Lazarus. And when you look at, at, the, at the cross, that whole thing, everybody always thinks it's John that's there with him in the end. It just says the disciple that Jesus loved. And, and I think it's something else to think about because at the end of it all, Peter's asking him, what about him? And he says, what if, he just, what if I just let him live on and on? 
Doesn't it make sense that the one who has already been risen from the dead <laughs> might fit into that category? I don't know who it is, but anyway, just think about it. But it's uh, just something to think about. Could very well be John. I'm not starting a controversy. If you want it to be John, John is good. It doesn't change our, the basic principles and tenets of our faith. It's all good. But it could be Lazarus. And, read, I, and I encourage you to know, look at that stuff. I, I, always, I always dig into that. And I go, really? Could it? And I start reading the other scriptures. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, yeah, it could be. And just because, you know, um, Da Vinci painted the picture, of, and it was John that was leaning against him. You know, um, Da Vinci wasn't there. <laughs> the picture came 1,600 some years later. So, because uh, <laughs> people look, oh, no, no, he's, look, he's, this is the guy leaning against Jesus. That's John. We know that. Okay. It ain't a picture. It ain't a photograph. <laughs> it ain't an eyewitness account. You know why they're all on one side of the table, right? Because Jesus said to them, hey, guys, everybody on this side so you can get in the picture. <laughs> it's an oldie, but it's a, it's a goodie. Okay, so it, it didn't change the dynamic at all. Just something to think about. And uh, I think it's a good thing. All right, so the first 20 verses are, are, are ultimately uh, about this, the, uh, this time that Jesus has during the Passover meal with them and the foot washing. And the foot washing here is significant. And, and I, I think about this thing all the time because... Um, we believe that, that as part of the regular course of this particular meal, um, a foot washing was probably worked into the ceremony. It was, it was part of what was going to take place. And so the, uh, it's very likely that the, the basin of water was there and the towel was already there in the room as part of the preparations. And that at the certain point when this thing was going to take place, a foot washing should happen. But now it's just Jesus and his disciples in the room. We know that's who's in there. And someone has, is going to have to wash everybody's feet. Now, understand in this dynamic that the, the washing of feet was usually left to a pretty low-type servant. And that um, people would, would be generally clean and bathed, and yet when they, when they walked on those dusty roads... They would still be clean, but their feet would be dirty. And so when they go to someone's house, sort of the low-level servant would wash their feet and they'd be clean again. That's kind of the, the dynamic that we're, we're looking at in the story. All right. So here we go. We're, we're at this point in the ceremony and it's time for the, the feet washing. Well, we know from the other accounts that we've got these disciples and their basic argument has been all along, who's the greatest? Which one of us is the greatest? And so they all know it's coming and yet no one moves to... Be the one that washes the other's feet. So who does it? Jesus does. And he gets up and he wraps the towel around his waist and begins to wash your feet. Now notice the, the one that we are recorded as having the biggest problem with this is Peter. Peter says, no, Lord, not you. I get the biggest kick out of that because I'm convinced that what Peter says is, oh, not you, Lord. I didn't want you to do it. I wanted John or James, one of these other guys, to do it. <laughs> so they would know it wasn't, you know, that I'm the greatest. And, and yet Jesus said, no, I have to wash your feet. And he goes, well, then wash everything. And when he says, well, no, if you've already had a bath, you're clean, 
Just your feet need to be clean. And I think it's a picture of sort of salvation in that once we've come to Christ, we're completely cleansed by Him. But, but as we sort of walk on um, and we're contaminated by the world around us and we get into little things, we need, more, we need a little extra forgiveness. You know what I mean? That's how we keep short accounts. We're going to go back to the Lord and say, all right, Lord, well, I know that you know, I'm, I'm saved and I'm, I'm good in you, but I had, these little, I had these situations today and I need forgiveness. And I think it's a picture of what's happening here in the process. And, and Jesus is extending and demonstrating um, this in the process. So, so I believe that... that there's a three things that we need to see here. One of them is this theological idea sort of expressed about um, being cleansed in Christ, and, and yet we continue to, to ask Him to help us with the, the stuff that we're still dealing with uh, in our lives, and it, it's expressed in that process. I, I think, secondly, He sets this amazing example about what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. That, that Jesus all along has been saying that the greatest in the kingdom are the, the servants. If you want to be great in the kingdom, you have to serve. I've set you an example to follow, he says. Do you get it? Because they, they have had trouble getting past this subject. We've looked at it now in three Gospels, the arguments that the guys have had about who's the greatest. And, and they're realistic because we, we often struggle with those things. We, we're not settled in who we are enough. And, and we think sometimes before we just do something, we're, we're more concerned about how it's going to look um, and that somehow people will think of us as, you know, well, well, you know, we're not, we're less, and, and the opposite is true, that we're to move into it. Jesus was able to do it, and, and I think it's it, because he knew who he was. He knew where he was going. He knew what was supposed to happen, and he could wash their feet. If anybody in the room deserved to, you know, take a pass on that, it was Jesus, and yet he's leading by example. And, and so he jumps right into it, and we always need to be aware of that. And third, I think this is really important, because we're talking all the time about not being pharisaical. Did you ever think about the fact that, that Jesus washes Judas' feet knowing full well that he's going to betray him? Knowing full well what's about to happen. He treats him with the same love and, and honor, basically, that he does the other disciples. And, and I wonder if we... If we sort of can be challenged by that because I'm not sure that we would do the same and, and I think it's, it's, it's important for us to understand that this was the heart of Jesus and that, that he demonstrated his love completely even to people who didn't respond um, he still loved them and, and he demonstrates it in this process and I just think there's, there's something in um, that thought that we need to sort of contemplate because uh, I think sometimes we get, we, get off, we get apart from that sort of understanding of what it means to love well as he loved. And he demonstrates it right there in the fact that he absolutely knew that, Jesus, uh, that Judas would betray him. And yet he, he treats him with this amazing love and, and respect. So, so those, are, those are big things. Those three big things are happening there in the foot washing time. Then um, verses 21 through 30, and we talked about that, Jesus, uh, Judas sort of uh, leaves. He, he goes to betray Jesus. And, and still the other disciples really didn't catch the encounter. They weren't sure what was going on. Um, and, and so, but Judas now is off to go and um, basically commit the greatest crime in history, I guess. But uh, that's what he's off 
to do in the process. And then everything begins to change in verse 31. And it, and it really goes, 31 is sort of a, a prelude into these next few chapters because now it's just Jesus and the 11 disciples that are left that have faith in him. And he begins to talk to them and lay out this foundation for what life's going to look like um, and, and what it's supposed to look like primarily for the church, uh, how, how they're going to relate. And, and he's got to start bringing into this whole idea the fact that, that he's not going to be there. And they're still not even getting that, but he's laying down some, some really amazing sort of foundational uh, ideas for this process. And, and he says this, he says, a new command I give you. Pretty significant. This is a new command, he says. Love one another. And then he clarifies it. As I have loved you, love one another. See, the command has been around to love God and love your neighbor as yourself, which is good. But Jesus takes it to another level. Do you know there's a difference between loving your neighbor as yourself and then loving someone the way Jesus loves us? Because he loves us in a very, very selfless way, he put us first. And it's a, it's a little higher notch than love someone as you love yourself. It's, it, it puts a whole different little take on it. And that, that this is the undergirding of, of what the church is ultimately to look like. We're, we're to love people the way Jesus loved us. We're, we're to, we're to, and, and we won't get it right away, but we need to know that that's what we're headed towards. That we're to love people the way that Jesus demonstrated love. And that he'll ultimately demonstrate it by going to the cross for us. And laying down his life for ours. Um, he, he sets that now as this foundation for love. And he says that this love, ultimately, as it's demonstrated by the people who love him, will impact the world. Because when people see that, they'll take notice. And, and, and he brings us to this point. This, this selfless love will be a witness to the world that Jesus is real. Because it's going to be different. They won't see it anywhere else. And it's, it's going to be accomplished as the Holy Spirit moves in us and, and brings us change and makes us different and helps us to change our perspective and to change the way we see things and to look outside of ourselves and to realize that it's a much bigger picture. And, and, and so that's what's taking place as he lays the groundwork. And um, he's going to talk, and what we'll start talking about next week is that, that what's going to have to happen and, and is that we're going to have to learn to trust God. We're going to have to trust Him in this. Because He's about to go. And, and He's going to say, but listen, here's what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come. And these are the way things are going to work. But I'm leaving. And, and you're going to have to trust me. That, that what I'm telling you is how it's going to go. And so we're going to learn the importance of trusting Him in these next few chapters. But get that they're struggling because Peter is like, what do you mean we can't come? We've gone with you everywhere for three years. All of a sudden, Jesus is saying, where I'm going now, you can't come. And they're like, wait, wait, wait. Three years? Understand, it's a long time. Everywhere you've gone, we've been. Now you're telling us we can't go. Of course, we'll go wherever you go. And he says, you can't this time. And, and with Peter, we'll see, you know, when we see that, that, that Jesus tells him he'll, he'll deny him three times before it's all over. And we know that Peter does. And we'll also see how Jesus restores him at the end of the book by asking him a question three times. And his response restores him back into ministry. And I love the fact that Peter, who struggles with this, when we get to the book of Acts, we're going to do Luke and then Acts, it, it's Peter that stands up and, and preaches this amazing message that, that brings the first 3,000 into the church, basically. And, and so he's restored 
by what he does. Because that's how Jesus loves us. He, he loves us with this amazing restorative love as we turn to him and look to him for help. So that's kind of the, the foundation of what's taking place. And, and we're gonna, we'll spring off of that into the next uh, two or three chapters over we come as we look at these, these things that Jesus tells his guys and that they apply to us. But primarily, that first one, that a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. That's the, the foundation of the love that we're to have in the church and what it's supposed to look like. And so that's sort of enough to think about this week. And now some of you are going to go home and start thinking about Lazarus. <laughs> Maybe none of you will. I don't know. <laughs> but it's a fascinating little study. So go check it out. All right. Uh, we're gonna, we'll stop there today. If you're watching by video, thanks for watching. And uh, um, if you need anything, you can write us or let us know if you're up in Williston watching. Uh, thanks for watching and uh, say hi to everybody up there and, and uh, we love you guys and we're going to do prayer requests and pray here and then we'll call it an evening so if you have prayer requests pass them up to me while you collect those i got to shut that video off real quick or it goes too long so I'll be back in 45